you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you this morning to turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, specifically verses 1 through 8 this morning as we continue in a series in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6. At our house, we have sort of a, a ringside seat to a construction project that is going on from our kitchen. If you look out the back window there, you see our neighbor behind us who is building a, a new home. And so we've watched with eager anticipation of them being able to move back into their home as they've moved out during this construction project. Now, where we live, for there to be a new house that is being erected, that meant that there was an old house that was on that lot that they owned that they tore down. And it's really interesting to see the contrast of how long it takes to build a house to how quickly a house that had been in that same lot, same place for decades and decades gets torn down. I mean, it just takes days to tear the house down. It's really remarkable. Months to build, days to tear down, lots cleared off, trees cut down, brush hauled off, the actual foundation dug up, a new basement that they dig, new foundation that's laid for the house to be erected. Sometimes to build means to demolish. Sometimes to build something, you must clear off what was in that place at one time. In this section of Scripture, we come in the Sermon on the Mount to one of the most famous sections of all of the New Testament that we know as the Lord's Prayer. What is a prelude to the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer, is a little bit of demolition work that Jesus does to tear down faulty foundations that we might be tempted to build our prayer house upon. And in these eight verses, Jesus is very clear to say there are certain tendencies in that first century world that must be stopped before you're able to build a sturdy foundation of prayer in what we know to be the Lord's Prayer. So eight verses, very clear as Jesus tells us of what we are to beware of doing. Beware of practicing, Jesus says, your righteousness in verse 8 of chapter 6 verse 1 of chapter 6, before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you that they've received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret And then your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray... Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. In Matthew chapter 6, there's one frequent point that is being made in three different examples. Uh, The first two examples come before the Lord's Prayer. The last example comes after the Lord's Prayer. 
but one refrain, one truth that the Christian life is never to be a life that is acted out in order to impress others. That there's a temptation to do our our Christian life as a showcase to be praised by others and to be applauded by others. And here in Matthew chapter 6 and what I've read and then what will come after the Lord's Prayer, we have three examples of how not to live the Christian life. And Jesus is very clear. Don't be a Christian who gives to be applauded. Don't be a Christian who prays to be applauded. And don't be a Christian who fasts to be applauded. So the focus this morning of the sermon that I want to primarily look at is how we are called to not pray to be applauded by others, but we are called to pray to be heard by God. Now notice in verses 6 and 5, verse 5 and 6 of Matthew chapter 6, that Jesus is very clear that we're called to not pray to impress others, but pray to be heard by God. It's important for you to understand how faithful that first century Jew was to prayer. I think it's important for you to understand that prayer was not optional, but prayer was essential to a first century Jew in Jesus' day. He or she would be devoted to public prayer and to private prayer. Morning and evenings were bookended with the Shema, Hero Israel, our Lord, our God is one. This is how they would start the day. This is how they would end the day. They were what were called the daily hours that were prayed in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening. 18 different types of prayer that were specifically offered and oftentimes offered not just privately, but also publicly wherever they were. Hence the street corners and even the synagogue. So Jesus says there's some commitment to prayer. There's consistency in prayer, but that's not enough. That you can be committed and you can be consistent, but miss the heartbeat of prayer. And the reason that you miss the heartbeat is you're praying for the wrong audience. Jesus calls us to pray for an audience of one, our Heavenly Father. And what we read and discover is that there was a temptation to pray for the audience of men and women who would hear to be applauded by them, to impress them, so that you could be seen as pious and receive a reward on earth and miss the audience of one. Notice that Jesus uses in this section of scripture that word hypocrite, which is a word that if you've been in church for 30 or 40 or 50 years, it's a word that you have heard. It's a word that you understand. But in Jesus's day, a hypocrite was a specific designation of an actor. First century Greco-Roman plays, a, a, a person who played a female role would oftentimes be a male so the way that the male would play the female role was by a mask and the change in the inflection of one's voice. And so to play the role of the hypocrite is literally to perform, to change diction and voice, to be heard, and to be someone other than who you were. And so what Jesus is saying is, is that when we pray to him, guess what? We don't have to put on mask. We don't have to pretend to be more pious we don't have to become someone else to be heard by God. Rather, we can pray to him out of sincerity of heart, and he hears us. Now, this is freeing. Not everyone in this room will pray corporately before us Sunday after Sunday, but most of us, of us in this room have the ability in our family to pray before others. Many of you were in life groups before you came into the sanctuary here and there was someone that maybe began your life group, maybe ended your life group in prayer. There are many of you that would pray in the context of our worship service 
here. There, there are many of you that have responsibilities in, in civic life and in, in the responsibilities that God has given you, and you're praying before others. And there, there's just this great freedom that we don't have to become someone else to be heard by God. That, that you don't have to become James Earl Jones with the tone of your voice to be heard by God. That's freeing. You don't have to become a seminary professor in your vocabulary to be heard by God. You, you don't have to talk to God about uh, your eschatological destiny and soteriological hope. I mean, you don't have to use those kinds of words to be heard by God, but you can use your words, your voice, and be heard by God because you're having a conversation with God and it is not called to be a performance before men and women. This is what Jesus says that frees us. This is how we're called not to pray. Well, then, in this passage, how do we pray to be heard by God? If he tells us how not to pray, then aren't you thankful that verse 6 gives us a detail of how we are called to pray to be heard? Notice what Jesus says. He says, go into your room. Go into your room to pray in private to be heard by God. That room is something that bears a little bit of explanation because rooms for us are private in the workplace. Most people have in their corporate life rooms and they, they can shut their office door. In your home, uh, there, there are some open floor plans, but, but many people have doors that they can shut in to have privacy in their rooms, uh, bathrooms that have doors and uh, bedrooms that have doors. But a first century Palestinian home there was no privacy. There, there would be only one place that would actually have a door. And most likely you couldn't even lock that door. But the, the one place that there was a door in a first century Palestinian room was the store feed. It, it, was, it was the place that you would have small animals. It was the supply house. It was the tools and the supplies. It was the least holy place in that first century agrarian Palestinian home. It, but there was a door. And what the door designates is privacy. What the door designates is that you could get away from the hustle and the bustle of responsibilities and you can intentionally commit to the Lord in prayer. Now, notice that this is a refrain that Jesus has throughout all of his ministry. One of the essential repetitions of Jesus' ministry is that he had a prayer closet, but it wasn't in a home. Notice one of the things that you would read in the Gospels. In Mark chapter 1, verse 35, you would read this. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed, and he went out to a desolate place where he prayed. Mark chapter 6, verse 46, and after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Matthew chapter 14, 23, and after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. Luke 6, 12, in these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. There's a principle of the closet. There's a principle of a prayer room that we need to trace from the contours of Jesus' life. And what that looks like, depending upon the stage of your life, what that looks like in the living arrangement of your life, what that looks like even with your personality, is going to look different. But the principle remains the same, that we are called to be men and women that consistently withdraw to be able to engage 
We withdraw to be able to focus upon intimacy with our Heavenly Father. And my question to you is, is where consistently and when consistently do you do that? Where is that place and when do you consecrate time to engage in prayer with God? If Jesus, the eternal Son of God, needed to move away from the crowds, move away from the responsibility, to be able to go to the mountainside, to be able to pray in solitude, how much more do we need to create space to be able to bow our knees because apart from him, we can do nothing. You know, I don't know how many of you have ever had this happen. It's, it's less likely to happen with vehicles now. But I remember vividly, 7th or 8th grade, going down a, a highway in Mississippi and running out of gas. I wasn't driving the vehicle. I was a passenger in the vehicle. And that is a deflating feeling. When, when the vehicle begins to run out of gas and all you can do is just pull over to the side of the road and you are broken down. And, and there's some of us in this room that need to be reminded that the fuel of the Christian life is prayer. That what propels us forward in holiness and obedience is the fuel of prayer. And, and there are prayerless ministries that are broken down on the side of the road. There, there are prayerless churches that are broken down on the side of the road. There, there are prayerless marriages that are broken down on the side of the road. There are prayerless families that are broken down on the side of the road. Jesus means it when he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And then there is a temptation for you and for me and for all of us in this room to say, I can add a lot without depending on him. There's ingenuity I have, there's intellect that I have, there's experience that I have, and I bring all that to bear. Well, none of that propels us forward like prayer does. And so where and when do you consistently withdraw to engage him in prayer? The prayer closet for Jesus was a mountainside, desolate place. So where and when has some ability to be specific to your life. For, for some of you in this room, it's a recliner. It's the end of the day. For some of you in this room, it's the back porch. It's early in the morning. For some of you in this room, it's that special chair. For some of you in the room, it's on the way to work. For some of you in the room, I don't know exactly where it is, but what is important is that there is a place and there is a time that you consecrate to him in prayer. For me, early on in my Christian life, running and prayer became connected. And that was, that was essential. Some, some very formative experiences in my life, clarity, clarity that God has provi provided, guidance that he has provided has been on mile two or mile three or mile four, whatever it might be, where it's just engaging him in prayer. The age of 16, getting ready for football two-a-days, running to the local YMCA and running home. You know what happened? I was running along this road, talking to the Lord in prayer, and I stopped running. I didn't look up and see anything in the sky. I didn't hear audible voices, but there was an undeniable impression that God was saying to me in that moment in my spirit, you are supposed to do what Harvey does. Well, who's Harvey? 
Well, Harvey was my student pastor. And it was that, as I'm standing before you, and as I can look at you and you can see me, it was, I was running, I stopped running, I felt that sense of calling, and I started running again, and it was that clear for me. So running and prayer has been essential for me. What, what, what is it for you? So early in the morning, running and, and walking through that model of A-C-T-S, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication, just a fancy word for praying for others, adoring him, confessing sin, thanking him, praying for others. This is a model that grounds me, keeps me focused as I'm running and praying. And it might be walking for you. It might be early in the morning for you. It might be late at night. The worst possible time of the day for some of you to pray is first thing in the morning. And that's okay. The worst possible time for me to pray is after nine. For some of you in this room, that's the best time. You're unwinding. You're looking back over the day. Again, we don't need to be legalistic about this, but there's an invitation. And my question to you is, is where is that place? When is that consistent time of engaging with him in prayer? And and do you have some handles? You have a model that guides you. And guess what? We're going to come to the Lord's Prayer. We're going to talk about that as a model prayer for your life. We're going to talk about handles that we can use in the coming weeks in prayer. But notice the refrain here that Jesus has so clearly given us. Don't pray to impress others, but pray to be heard by God. Second and final point here that I want you to see in this section of Scripture here is that we're called to not pray with meaningless repetition, but to pray from the heart. And again, Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 through 8 ground us in this. As Jesus says in this passage here, when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. Some of you have in your copy of God's Word babbling, babbling like the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard by their many words. And again, I think it's helpful for us to understand some of the cultural context that Jesus is addressing here in this section of Scripture. There, there was an undergirding pagan philosophy that is at work in the Old Testament. It's even at work in the New Testament here that the longer your prayer was, that the more you would get the attention of, of the lowercase g gods. So the longer you pray the more that the gods had to answer you. You you see this when Elijah has this duel with the prophets of Baal on on Mount Carmel. And early in the morning till noon, they're chanting and praying, interceding for fire to strike down that altar from heaven. You have this interesting account in Acts chapter 19. Uh, where there's a crowd at the theater of Ephesus, and for two hours you have this intercession, which is great as Artemis of the Ephesians, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. Again and again and again and again and again. And so Jesus here is saying, don't pray like that. Don't, don't pray with this meaningless repetition here. Now, again, notice that Jesus' own ministry has repetition in prayer. So he's not forbidden repetition, nor even long prayers exclusively. The Garden of Gethsemane, you have him praying through night. You have him uh, saying in, in the scriptural passages that describe Gethsemane that he comes the third time praying the same words. Uh, Tim Keller has been helpful to me, uh, the pastor and writer, where he talks about that word babbling or what you have in the ESV that is empty phrases. And and it's a word that has this connotation of intense 
petition. It's, it's almost as if you're coming before God and you're saying, give me this. Grant me this. Give it to me now. I have to have this. You know you need to meet my desires. It becomes this sense of a genie in the bottle where if you rub God with your prayers three times, he would have to grant you what you ask him. And Jesus is saying, you don't have to come before him in that kind of way. He is a heavenly father who desires to hear from you He is a heavenly father who knows you. He is a heavenly father who you don't have to inform of your needs, nor do you have to convince him to hear you in prayer. He desires to have that relationship with you because why? You are a child of the most high king. So come to him as your father. One of the great joys I have is being a father of three children, three boys, 13 12 and 7. A little routine in our family life is is our two youngest boys go to Edgewood Elementary. Our oldest son goes to the middle school. So Danielle picks up the two youngest at Edgewood. She drives over here. She parks close to the church and to my office. And my oldest son walks down from the middle school. Daily routine in the life of the Eldridge family. So recently, my youngest son, instead of sitting in the van waiting, about three o'clock, he walks down some steps where there is a secret door that's not so secret after me mentioning this in three services here. But uh, there is a little door that goes into my office that faces evergreen. So about three o'clock, if I'm in my office, I hear this little knock at my door. Monday or Tuesday of this last week, I was in my office. I opened the door and there's Jonathan, my youngest son. He's like, dad, dad, look what I got from the library. He had a Babe Ruth biography that he got from the library. We want our kids to be scholars of baseball. (laughs) Dad, did you know Babe Ruth hit 714 home runs? Dad, did you know he grew up in an orphanage? Dad, did you know that he played minor league baseball in Baltimore? I mean, all of these facts about Babe Ruth. And he came into my office. He always wants to play on my computer and he always wants to see if I have candy and those kinds of things. You know, the, you know, the best part of the day is when I'm in my office and I, I hear that knock at the door. You know what I never do when I hear a knock? I never pretend that I'm not there. I, I never hide. I, ne- I never hide and hear him say, dad, I know you're in there. I know you're in there, dad. Uh-uh. I know this is a precious moment in this unique season of my life that I'm going to have a son who's at an age where he's going to knock on his dad's door. And I know that's fleeting. Well, I love the title. I love the the tremendous responsibility and the great joy of being the pastor of this great church. But I tell you, it pales in comparison to the title that I have as a father to three boys. It does. And so there is no doubt that the best part of my day is when I'm in my office and I open it and I get to spend that kind of time just in the midst of it. That's the best part of the day. But you know something? I'm not omnipresent. I'm not. So there are days that I'm not in the office. There are days I'm at the hospital. There are days I'm in meetings. There are days I'm at another part of the church. So I can't always be at three o'clock right there in the office. And he knows that. I know that. We as a family know that. I want to see him at night. But anytime I'm in my office and he knocks at the door, I'm opening the door. And I want you to know 
that you do have an omnipresent Father who always is eager to hear you knock on his door in prayer. And there's never a time where you can inconvenience him with that knock. That there's never a time where he hides from him. There's no secret knock. You don't have to knock three times and pause for three seconds and knock three more times. You don't have to have all of this theological sophistication that you have a heavenly father who desires to open his door to you anytime you knock on his door in prayer. And this is the great joy and privilege of the Christian life is that you have a heavenly father that sent his son and his son has lived a perfect life, ascended into heaven, seats at the, is seated at the right-hand throne of the father and he makes intercession for you. And you have a Holy Spirit that has descended and indwells us and even in our groans and petitions, he prays in us and through us. So all of that Trinitarian work leads us in community and in intimacy with him. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he is for you in prayer. He empowers you in prayer. And every time and any time that you knock, he is present and he is not preoccupied. He is not busy. You don't inconvenience him. He's not somewhere else and he has to be fetched. He is there and he longs to intercede for you and he longs to hear from you. So it's this great joy of prayer for your life and my life. It is not the arithmetic of our prayers, how many prayers that we pray. It's not the rhetoric of our prayers that is important, how eloquent that they are, they are not. There's not the logic of our prayers that really matters, how argumentative and orderly they are. It's not the method of our prayers that we can make God hear us if we say these words for 30 days straight, but it is the fervency. It's the heart, the consistency of knocking on his door. So knock boldly. Knock boldly with no hesitations or reservations. Knock boldly on his door consistently and regularly. Knock on his door in prayer. He is always eager. He is always waiting to hear from you. So knock on his doors for the sake of your marriage. Knock on his door for the sake of your children. Knock on his door for the sake of your grandchildren. Knock on his door for the sake of the clarity of your future. Knock on his door for the sake of your personal holiness. Knock on his door for opportunities to point your friends and your neighbors to the sufficiency of Christ for their salvation. Knock on his door for the vision of our church. Knock on his door for those that are grieving, that are persecuted across the world. Knock on his door for the sake of the vision and the future of our country. Knock on his door for every neighborhood that we live in and every community that we love. Knock on his door because we need thee. Oh, how we need thee. Every hour we need thee. Oh, bless us now, our Savior, as we come to thee. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you that you are a God who has made a way to give us access to you in and through prayer. Thank you that you are always open to hear from us, your children. Thank you that there is nothing that is too small that we can't take to you in prayer. There is nothing that is unfathomable that you cannot handle. There is no part of our life 
Because we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize, but one in every respect has been as tempted as we are, yet you, your son is without sin. So we have the great invitation to approach your throne with boldness so that we may receive help in our time of need. Apart from you, we can do nothing. So we confess as we try to minister out of our own strength and we try to lead our families in our own strength, that we try to be your church in our own strength, that we try to parent in our own strength, that we try to be employees and employers in our own strength. Apart from you, we can do nothing. So give us a vision to consistently and regularly engage you in prayer, to knock boldly, to be able to be fueled for the obedience that you call us to as believers. Well, this is not a weight. This is not a burden. This is a privilege. Thank you, God, for making a way for us to commune with you in and through prayer. It's in your name we pray.